Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers, both inside and outside of medicine. Recharge and refocus with incredible stories, unique perspectives, and unforgettable conversations. Get ready to see what's working. Get ready to see what's ahead. Get ready to see things differently. Get ready for Peer Spectrum. Now your hosts, Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. Today we have a fun episode for you. Dr. Gregory Lopez is an orthopedic spine surgeon in Chicago with Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. He's a former collegiate minor league baseball player who's experienced his fair share of injuries. In fact, it's those experiences that inspired his path towards medicine. He's also an innovator, and that's where the story gets fun. As a baseball player, Greg recognized the critical importance of regular practice. During residency, Greg recognized a real need for more hands-on surgical practice. Unfortunately, time was limited, and cadavers and bone models are pretty expensive. So Greg decided to build his own surgical simulator to help his peers and himself improve basic psychomotor skills. Surgical simulators are complex and expensive. So where did Greg go to start his project? A large medical device company? A sawbones manufacturer? Kickstarter, maybe? Nope. Greg headed right over to his local Home Depot and started shopping. As we'll learn, Greg, along with several of his colleagues, ultimately created a simple yet elegant system for practicing basic surgical hand skills, all for around 350 bucks. Today, this system is being used in teaching hospitals around the country and around the world. We're going to learn all about it, and we're going to explore the broader challenges related to medical education and maintenance of skills. We learned a lot from Greg in this episode, and we know you will too. With that said, let's get started. Dr. Lopez, Greg, welcome to this program. We're so glad to have you. Oh, thank you guys very much for having me. It's an honor to be here today. Well, it's an honor to have you. Um, you've got an interesting history before you got into orthopedics. You played collegiate baseball and minor league baseball. Tell us, tell us about that, and then when did you start thinking about medicine, and particularly when did you start thinking about orthopedics? So I, I was a little biased because growing up with sports, you know, I was constantly you get injured here and there. And I had a great uh, team, team orthopedic surgeon when I was in high school. And I was like, man, he does such a neat thing. You know, he's helping people out, getting back to their previous function. You do these cool surgeries. And I was like, that looks really cool to do. So I, at that time, I started shadowing physical therapists and orthopedic surgeons and I thought in my mind, you know, that would be a fun, fun route to go if I could ever make it. You know, you're like, well, I got to go to undergrad and do pre-med, all this stuff. Who knows if I could ever do it? Well, I started at Notre Dame and was like, there's no way I'll be able to, to compete with these other students here. And my first year, I got like straight A's. Mm. And I was like, holy smokes, maybe I can potentially do this then. So I stuck with it. And uh was able to get into medical school. And at the end of residence, at the end of, uh, of my undergrad uh, career, I was lucky to be drafted by the Blue Jays, um, but also I was lucky to get into medical school. And so I thought at the time, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll push off base, I'll push off medical school for a bit, go play some baseball. But I got a, I got a terrible concussion and I had post-concussion syndrome and, and the Blue Jays were like, hey, come back for spring training the next year and uh, we'll go from there. And I thought, you know, what if I really don't like medical school? You know, I've had it, you build it up over these years. You're like, oh, I, I'm going to love it. But then when you get into it, you may never really like it. It's a big decision. So I let's, let's go try medical school at this time and, and see what it was like. And do we really want to pursue this career now that we're in? And if worst, worst case, I have to go and, and, and play in the minor league. So 
uh, once I was in medical school, I knew this was my path. I'm like, this, this is what I've, I've, I've made the right decision. I felt so much at ease. And I had actually, during my college career, had a spinal fusion procedure and was like, you know what? Uh, I, I'm, I'm done being banged around and, and travel from city to city, you know, you know, game here, game there. I'm like, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Um, so that was my path to get into medical school, uh, to orthopedics was more just when I was in medical school, you get to see every, every different specialty and orthopedics itself. You, know, you get a lot of hands-on things. What I loved was just that, you know, people were injured and you could help them. And most people were able to be improved back to the way they were. So I, I was, it was hard not to fall in love with it. And, and I was lucky enough to, to go down that path. You know, you know, it's interesting, the path you're describing, um, there is some uncertainty with that. There's, um, there was the whole question, you know, can I do uh, college? Can I do medical school? Will I thrive? Um, it's, it sounds like it's almost the same thing as, will I get drafted? Will I be able to hit the fastball? Did you find that, that some of those skills and some of those things did overlap? Oh, 100%. You know, it, uh, it's funny. I mean, I, I, my sports career which I did for much longer than doing any of this medical stuff is what has, has really made me, I think, able to be so relatively successful is because, you know, I, I went into every test, I went into every talk or whatever I was doing is like, um, there is no failure. There's no option, <laughs> but to, to win or to succeed at what I'm doing. So I, I never really thought like, oh, this won't work out in much of my mind. I'm like, this is going to work out. This has to work out because when you're in sports, especially in baseball, you have to come with a positive mindset every single day. Because I mean, I, I was a successful collegiate baseball player, but I, I, you know, my average was still only just over 300. So that means like seven times <laughs> I was getting out. You know, I was thinking I was terrible. You know, so was, you, you have to be able to keep every time I went up to bat, I would always think, all right, let's do this. I'd mentally visualize myself getting a hit. I knew I would get a hit. I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking I'm better than this pitcher. There's no way he's going to get me out. So that that kind of mentality definitely helped me as I went to medical school and and residency and and even now. You know, it just is. Uh, it's it's really helped me succeed. Well, that's interesting. You've had a spinal fusion, and not every spine surgeon out there has actually gone through that. When you're communicating now with patients, we all know that. The attitude and, of course, post-operative care has a lot to do with their recovery and their outcome. Um, when you're dealing with patients that may not want to put in the PT afterwards, may not want to change their diet, may not want to stop smoking, um, how has your experience helped you maybe connect with these patients or, or help them you know, really change their attitude around? I, I think it's really helped me just really connect with the patient saying, I've, I've been through some form of what you have. I've had pretty significant back pain. I've had some nerve issues here and there. Um, so I, I understand the pain that you're going through now. And what, what, I, what I've in, enjoyed about spine is you, you really get people who are having a tough time because chronic pain can make you go a little crazy. And it's until you really have some sort of like pain that lasts for a period of time, um, you don't really understand that like pain and pretty severe pain, you're like, man, you know, it makes you, you know, angry at the world, you're tired more, you feel fatigued. And when you have that, you have, and seeing someone else, especially a surgeon who's been through something similar to it, um, it helps me 
relate to them and say, hey, you know, I know where you're at. You have a you have a problem that's very very easily identified here on your on your scans and what you're clinically telling me. It all lines up. You have a you have a very high chance of of getting better from where you are right now. So I, I think that really helps me connect to the patients. That, you know, understanding that hey, they can get better. This this will help them um, moving forward. So uh, so I think it, it that has helped me the most is relating to the patient. Have you found any of them are surprised that you've actually had a spinal fusion? I mean, sometimes we think of older patients needing this, unless it was a pediatric issue like deformity. Um, Oh yeah, definitely, I, I, definitely. Mine was a uh, 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 symptomatic ischemic spondylolisthesis, where you have a, a defect in your pars region in in the lumbar spine. And for me, it was just I, I just had this. My legs always felt heavy. Sometimes I have nerve pain in my legs, and I always felt my back was just locked up and tight, and I couldn't quite play. And I was in the middle of my collegiate career, uh, and so I, I really had that issue. So for me. My patients tell me like, man, you're too young to have a spinal fusion, but um, it was what I needed at the time. Um, it allowed me to go back to playing at a high level and being uh, being a, a collegiate shortstop again and still being drafted. So, um, but it, it definitely helps me, especially even the post-op period um, for my patients, letting them know like, this is what to expect. This is how things are going, you know, you're going to feel these things here and there. So it helps me uh, relate to them in terms of how their, their progression after surgery is. Yeah, it helps to be able to speak the uh, the patient's language when it comes to the level of pain. Sometimes there's that gap between the uh, the doctor and the patient where you know I know you're going to have pain here, or oh the pain's not going to be that bad. But you're saying, look, I know exactly what your pain is like. So that that's probably is very genuine. That probably helps a lot. Um, and uh, expectations too, like you're saying, it's just like you you have to set the expectation of the patient right. beforehand, which really helps with their understanding afterwards. You're like, oh, there's no, not really much pain at all. And they're, and you didn't realize they're gonna have two or three days of pretty excruciating pain. They're, they're gonna be a bit upset with you. Yeah. So you've evolved interest in minimally invasive spinal techniques. Is that correct? Oh yeah, uh, 100%. So okay. I, I have I have uh, lucked out greatly. I was able to be a, uh, do my post-residency training at Rush um, with some of the surgeons here. And you get, a, it's a, wonderful fellowship you get from spinal deformity down to minimally invasive and the whole breadth of spine surgery um, but what I've what I recognized during my training was that uh, the new te newer techniques are like minimally invasive which is more of a mindset of how can we do this with sparing muscle and still getting uh, as good or better outcome than doing an open um, traditional posterior spine surgery and what we what we do is for like a, a minimally invasive spinal fusion of lumbar spine, you use a set of tubes that are a few centimeters wide, and you go between the muscle, and you really spare a lot of the soft tissue dissection, uh, which makes sense in the orthopedic world. Not many times are we doing like a femur and spreading the all the the quadriceps muscles, you know, flaying them open and leaving retractors in for four hours. So it, it makes a lot of sense. And what I've been able to see firsthand was patients not only feel pain-wise better, they have less bleeding, less complication, and their day after the operation, they're like up and moving and go home, um, which is very different than what I was used to. So I've, I've, I've really taken to that. And because of my training uh, in fellowship, I've, I've just proceeded on. I'm, I've been about 100% uh, minimally invasive uh, spine surgery so far. And it, I've seen it in my patients as well where they, they're uh, very quick recovery, which I think is a big benefit to the patient. Um, 
myself yet. That's great. Well, this transitions us a little bit into the other aspect of your, of your career, which is the um, uh, sorry surgical simulator uh, equipment, uh, not necessarily for minimally invasive, but um, as a uh, person who was a spine surgeon until uh, recently, but for 20 years, I think if I wanted to go into minimally invasive spine, I would have to learn a whole new set of things. Um, so there has to be a way to do that without necessarily having to go back and do, um, a fellowship or, or do all the techniques. Um, is that, did that cross your mind when you were, uh, thinking about the, uh, surgical simulator, uh, equipment? Is that something that, that drove you about that? Uh, it didn't drive me at the time, but it, it drives me now for sure. Um, initially what I was thinking was I was a second year resident and I was sitting here and I was thinking, I was like, and you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of my residency, I'm doing, you know, operating, you know, three, four days a week, and I'm in there. But realistically, I'm only drilling into bone a couple times a week. And, you know, because there's a resident, sometimes you get a chance, sometimes you don't. Um, I'm really only, you know, practicing these, these exercises and techniques we use only a few times. This was so foreign to me, because in, in sports, especially baseball, you would, I would do a, a simple physical skill. And I would do it for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. And I would do it every single day before every practice, before every game, so that when you brought multiple simple skills together and made it to a complex movement, um, it became second nature. You weren't even thinking about it. So instead of thinking like, oh, I'm going to make sure my hand's in the right direction. And like, like if, if I put it in the concept of, being a, of drilling, uh, make sure my hand's in the right direction, make sure it's you know dipped down, going where I want it to go. I wouldn't think about that. I'd be thinking like, oh, what is my actual strategy for this operation? Do I really want my plate there? Is it in the right position? Is this where my screw angle should be? Is that what you know? You're thinking more of complex thoughts. Um, so I thought, you know, why don't we have something to practice on? And we have, you know, what we had at the time were you know cadaver labs, uh, which are you know on a weekend, maybe every once a, once a month if you're lucky, but really it's not that common. Um, you can get saw bones or like uh, synthetic bone exercises, but again, those are kind of expensive and it's always hard to figure out what exactly you want to do with it. Um, so I thought, why don't we come up with something that's low cost, uh, that everyone has access to and we can, we can, uh, objectively quantify it. And my, I was lucky enough at the time, my chairman, um, Raja Gupta from university of California, Irvine, um, he came up with the idea is like, Hey, you know, we should, we should do this. You know, why don't you, why don't you just go and do it and keep it low cost? And and at the time, I was like, oh, we'll get some synthetic bones, this and that. He's like, no, you need to go 100%. Anyone can use it. And it was such a great idea. I was like, you're right. We should have everyone um, be able to have access to this and be able to make it from a recipe that I create. So I, what I did was I, I came up, I, I thought like, okay, drilling, you know, and, uh, and arthroscopy. What do we do that are basic skills? For that and it's like just triangulating your drill or triangulating your your instruments on arthroscopy and i thought you don't need anatomy you don't need to have uh you don't need to have like specific instrumentation you just need to have a drill and you need to have a box where you can perform simple things that we do that are similar but you know they they'll translate across because i uh, um the the cool thing at the time was orthopedics was so far behind general surgery in the realm of simulation that it wasn't that hard for me to, to create it because they had already done so much. Um, they had created this thing called the Fundamentals of Laparoscopic Surgery. And what it was, was, uh, you know, as, as you guys probably know, there was open, like open cholecystectomy when they, when they took out gallbladders, 
open. It was a transition to the, uh, the uh, with um, lap laparoscopy. And there was this period where this new technology, which was obviously showing a great benefit to patients um, and healthcare, but it, yeah, these other surgeons were never trained on it and they either weren't doing it, so they weren't getting quite the same care as the other patients, or they were trying it and having this huge complication. So how to bridge that gap? So they came with a basic simulator, low cost simulator that was basically a box, had a static camera, and you just used different instruments to practice these simple skills in. And it, it was such an ingenious idea. And they made it so you quantify the skills they had, and it allowed them uh, to, uh, to translate it to residency programs and to, to other physicians who hadn't done that task before. Right. And they made it so, so then it became, you had to do it for your board certification and things like that. So I basically took their blueprint and thought, let's do this for orthopedics. This makes complete sense where you can have residents practice simple skills, you know, for five, 10 minutes every single day. And they can quantify how they're doing. They'd be, okay, that was bad. This was good. That was bad. They can relate, you know, how they're doing in terms of their other peers or their, or, or the, just the general data of everybody else. And, uh, and they would be better at these basic skills as opposed to learning them while they're in the operating room. So that was really the main driver for me um, for, for building the simulators. And Greg, when we're talking about low cost here, I mean, this is about, what, 350 bucks from Home Depot, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm laughing when I'm reading this because I'm thinking, I'm picturing you walking into the Home Depot and the guy comes up with the orange vest on and he says, well, what kind of project are you working on today? I mean, did that happen? Well, How did you explain what you were buying and what was this, what was this for? A hundred percent. It was hysterical because I was, I basically went in there with ideas and in, the, in, a, in a day and a half, I came out with basically what the simulators are now. Um, but I would walk in there I'd look around. I was like, no, that pipe's too big or this one's too small. Or I'd have to describe like, I need something that rotates. And, uh, and the, the people there would be like, oh, I think you need this. And they walked to that aisle and walk to the other aisle and, and kind of piece it together. Like, oh, it's perfect. This is exactly what I'm thinking of. So, um, so it was, it was a fun, it was a really fun, especially uh, the week that I really put everything together. It was a phenomenal week. Cause it was one of those kind of like Eureka moments. You're like, Holy cow! Why haven't people been doing this? You know what is what is going? This is like such a simple thing and such a simple idea, and and everyone can do it. And in my mind, coming from a sports background where you do these simple tasks every day and these motor skills, I was like, how has this not been done before? So it was uh, it was a fun time. It was really a fun time when I when I came up with it. Exactly right. I was just in there with the the Home Depot crew, putting different pipes together and and uh, and trying to make a simulator. You you broke this down to, into different techniques and different areas of, um, of practice. So fracture reduction, depth of plunge, drill by feel, on and on. So this is not unlike being a baseball player. You're working on your 40-yard dash. You're working in the weight room, strength training, doing different, um, different practice routines that all come together for how you perform on the field. Yeah. Uh, how did you decide what to pick? And then tell us how you measured these and um, – measured effectiveness and also progress. You know, you had residents, you had uh, medical students and then attendings doing yep. this in your study. So uh, for me, just picking what to do, I, I think I lucked out in being kind of the right right person, right place, right time. Um, because with my baseball background, like you're saying weight room and four-yard dash, what baseball would break any more would be like, because I was a shortstop, I'd work on my forehand, you know, fielding a ground ball, then a backhand fielding ground ball, and then right in front of me fielding ground ball, because those are different motor skills, each one of how to, how to pick it up. And so I thought 
how can I break down drilling, like a drill, you know, drill, taking a drill in your hand and break down what we do in the operating room. So I thought, okay, one of the things we do is we place a lag screw where you go from a known start point to a known end point, but getting the, the channel or the path from drilling that path to, to, to get it to go where you want um, is unknown. So you have to be able to triangulate in your mind to go from point A to point B without seeing the path. And then I thought, what else do we do? We do uh, like a pinning, a hip pinning. You go from a known start point to an unknown end point, and you're taking two orthogonal views, an AP and a lateral, to be able to tell where, you, where you're drilling. Also, we can do the same thing with the block of wood. We mark two orthogonal views, 90 degrees away, apart from each other, and we would make the end point unknown, but you know your start point. So you had to figure out in your mind, okay, how do I get from one point to the other? Uh, one of the other skills we do is when you do a uh, like an external fixator on the thigh, uh, on, on the femur, you don't actually see the femur. You may not even, even take an x-ray half the time. Right. You're just taking the tip of your drill bit and you're plunging into this soft tissue cavity and you're feeling with your drill, which is completely different than any other task. You're feeling, okay, here's the top, here's the bottom. Please let me hit the middle so my attending doesn't yell at me. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, then I want unicortical on the femur. So, you know, so I, I, I did a similar thing. I took a big roll of foam, made it kind of mushy around, and then inside of it, I put a, a piece of wood that you have to feel the front, feel the back, and guess where the midline is. And you drill in the middle, and I can measure how far off you are from the middle. And then I thought also, you know, what else do we do? We, when you're drilling, like you're doing like a distal radius fracture, I mean, most people have been in an academic institution hear, hear the story of, of the resident who was doing the distal radius, and they, they plunged right through, and they, they brought back, you know, the part of the table with them through the, through the wrist. So some people have done it. It's because you know, learning how to limit yourself while you're drilling so that you feel the first cortex, second cortex. Okay, stop. Um, I thought that's a different skill. So I was able to do that. I took a, a PVC pipe and had a foam block. And I was like, all right, let's see how far people plunge past it. And then uh, one of the things is just learning how to fracture reduce. So I, I, had, uh, I thought being able to pick up uh, crab claws and going inside a soft tissue envelope is important. So I, I grabbed, you know, another PVC pipe and made a fracture in it and had an instrument that, that kind of rotates around and I put a little rubber band on it and then another one that shortens. And so it kind of gives a feel of a fracture and you have to be able to go inside the soft tissue, a little incision that I made and, and, and reduce the fracture. Um, and then, uh, I think th those are all the ones. And then, so then being able to quantify them was the fun part because I was like going and test all the residents and orthopedic surgery residents are inherently competitive. So it was fun because it didn't matter if you were a, if you're a resident or attending, most of the time they were like, Oh, I got to do better. They'd always want to know, Hey, how, <laughs> how they do I did better than him, right? I'm better. I'm better. Right. So that, that was the fun part. So I, I got to go and, uh, and test, um, a lot of people. The fun thing was at the time, this was all just beginning. And so my, my chairman saw the validity of this, the importance of this project. So he was able to get, some of his friends in the academic community uh, one at the uh, uh, at Wash Washington University in St. Louis, um, another one at Wake Forest, um, and they had me fly out there. And the nice thing was the whole, whole point of this was like, hey, you can take my recipe and build this. So I all I did was I didn't take any parts with me. I flew out there. Hey, Greg, let me stop you for a second because obviously you're already getting attention for this. This isn't just a product in your of your residency. I mean, how are people hearing about this and how is the idea spreading? Well, it, initially, the, the spark was we were doing it at, at UC Irvine. Um, and then we had some people come and visit and they're like, hey, this is phenomenal. 
why even why is anyone else doing it? You should come and, and bring it to my institution or you know, let me know how to build these things. So that's how it was the fun part was we'd have visiting professors seeing it. And you know, sometimes I'd look at it, I'm like, this is just a you know, a bunch of junk and a bunch of wood. But then um, I'd have these, you know, residency program directors, chairman come like, this is phenomenal. We need to have this. So the positive feedback really got some of the momentum. And because of that, my chair was like, let's let's go visit a few other places. So I, um, that's how I got sent to WashU and, and Wake Forest. And I was able to, to go there and went to Home Depot, built the, built, again. Built the, built the boards and uh, been doing it. I built the boards too many times now, but uh, <laughs> built the boards and tested the residents and 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 went from there. The, the training part uh, was more the fun part uh, because you got to show them, you know, how to do skills, what they're doing. So. Um, the nice thing for us was we at UC Irvine, we were able to teach people how to use it and how to do each one each one correctly. And then I have a whole recipe book for both the arthroscopy and the drilling control exercise one um, that uh, allows people to build it. And then how do you how do you quantify it? How do you teach people to use it? Um, so that's it's been a it's been a fun. It's been a labor of love. That's for sure. It's it's uh, it's been fun, though. Yeah. How many uh kits how many um setups do you think are being used right now would you say i would guess um i would guess 20 to 30 wow. um i've probably g- given out the the menu or whatever to probably 50 different programs across the world um the the fun thing has also been just i think the international community is almost even more interested because they're fi- financially i mean if, if some of the american institutions they have issues but the international the international uh, hospitals and schools that don't even have uh, you know right. a fourth the money that we have so it's it's very difficult for them to teach so learning how to teach uh, good concepts with less money is very important so it's it's been neat to see the the, the drive that other uh, countries have had for this that's phenomenal well let's take a little shift here so i'm looking at a quote here and of course i'm Regretting now that I didn't know how to pronounce this guy's name correctly, so I apologize to all our viewers, but this is a violinist, and his name is Joshua Heifetz. If I'm wrong, I apologize, but he has a great quote here. Uh, He said, if I don't practice one day, I know it. If I don't practice two days, the critics know it. Three days, the public knows it. And I thought, in my opinion, this kind of parallels this, because patients don't always see what goes into a practice, what goes into your training, and and they don't always appreciate... Uh, what good technique is, and they're not awake during surgery, let's face it. But it also brings us into something that we've talked about a lot on the show, getting better at your practice, uh, continuing to educate yourself, continuing to improve. And now that you're out in the, in the real world, Greg, how often do you think surgeons are taking the time to actually just practice, if not to just get better, to at least keep a high level of proficiency? How would you do that? And if you were... A better question would be, if you were asked to come up with a training program, could this idea be incorporated into that? So it's actually a very tough question. I've actually thought a lot about this because um, it's, it was easy for me in residency to think, how can we train residents? Because that's really the big part of where this was anchored towards. Right. But like, you know, going back to the FLS analogy of incorporating laparoscopy to physicians who had no experience, no exposure with it, um, to be able to do it. Is difficult. So I, I think, um, you know, go back to your question about educate. I, I'm uncertain how much people really go back for continuing education and trying to practice. I think 
a lot of physicians get they get into their routine they know it works and they use it and it's hard to deviate from that even when you hear different things going on but i'd like to believe that there is still you know that the education part where, where for most physicians they've always loved to learn their whole life learning new techniques and, and incorporating those are still is still being done i i know it is changing some because i am out in a suburban hospital a lot of time and i have physicians who um spine spine physicians at my hospital who um do minimally invasive spine surgery who definitely were never trained on it um, but they've learned by doing different courses um to incorporate it into their practice so i, I think it's there's a, there's a whole spectrum of physicians who, who go right full into it and some who don't. Um, but how to best incorporate new technology, I think there's going to be uh, a shift in, in the education uh, paradigm for that. I, I, what, we're probably what you're alluding to is the, as new technology comes out, especially drastic changes in technology, um, they're going to have to figure out a way to teach people to perform newer procedures safely. And the hard part, what I've learned is that to do it, it's usually not over the course of one weekend. It's very difficult to do just one single course and be like, okay, I feel comfortable doing a lateral inner body on someone now that I've done a lateral inner body course is big. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a high risk operation. So I think in order to, to be able to incorporate in your practice, there's going to be more uh, more steps along the way to be able to do that, which includes lower cost training in some form to be able to do basic some of the basic things that you do in that procedure over and over again, and then building up to the to being able to perform the whole operation on on someone else. Um, but there, but like you're saying, there is there is a uh, there is a void out there. There really isn't much in, in terms of uh, someone telling, okay, yeah, you, you, you can perform that procedure, um, uh, competently. You're, you're good to do it, you know, out, out on, out in the, in the real world. Um, there is no check in and, uh, rain for that right now. Right. Yeah. We, I was just going to say, we really can't afford much learning curve anymore. There was a time when, you know, n new technique and it was okay if, if people didn't have the greatest results, but now you have to get out there if you're doing the procedures. They have to be spot on right away. Um, do you think that there's going to be a time? We, we obviously uh, now test maintenance of knowledge um, for certification. Do you see a time where we might be testing maintenance of, of te technical skills in the surgical fields or in the, in the procedure-driven fields? Yes, I, I, I think at least some sort of competency. And I'm not sure how the best are going to be, it's going to be able to be done. Um, because it's hard to do it in labs and this and that. I think overall it's going to be kind of going to the whole value-based healthcare. I think uh, having good patient outcomes is the end result that we all want. And to be able to, to monitor that is, is going to take a multi-fold approach. We have to be one, you know, being able to see how patients do after, um, but two, also making sure that the correct procedure was done well. And that's right. why they're having a, be a beneficial thing. So it, it, it may come down to internal reviews at hospitals where um, surgeons may have to be observed by other surgeons for a period of time in order to, to be you know checked off but I think the way that healthcare is moving with this outcome based outcomes based approach uh, along with competency there is definitely going to be uh, much more scrutinized uh, uh, exam or uh, kind of test 
that people are gonna have to take than just taking a written a written right. test. That to right. me does it doesn't quite make sense, especially it doesn't make sense with a with a field where it's all phys, you know it's such a physically motor skill oriented field, you know, and, and knowing you can't know if someone is able to do it just by um, a written test. And how about somebody returning to practice? Because there are times in a career where you're you're injured, you're out for a little bit. Um, I think about military surgeons who go on deployment, and they may not have much of a chance to use their subspecialty skills where they are, but they're needed, and that's how it works in the military. Um, surgeons in small community hospitals where they may do it one type of procedure maybe once a quarter, mm-hmm. and they don't have the kind of volume to have at a bigger institution. How do you think this kind of technology could help these surgeons and also so they can evaluate their own ability to return to practice or just to those particular privileges mm-hmm. at the hospital. No, I, I think something will be will definitely come down that vein. In regards to what I've made, for the most part, it's really basic, basic skills. It's it's probably not quite up to the level for, you know, can I do this complex procedure or can I do something like that? But I think um, that it is heading towards that way, just healthcare in general, that we need to have a way for physicians to practice um, and perform. If you look at the, you know, um, the pilots, if they're away, like if you fly, uh, uh, if you fly um, Air Force uh, planes, and if you're away for a certain period of time, you have to go back to a simulator for a prescribed number of hours right. and become proficient at it before you can get back into the cockpit. Um, which makes sense, just like kind of you were saying the vi- the violinist quote about taking time off. You know, I, I think I'm sure most surgeons agree when you take time off. That first surgery or two, you're like, you know, I don't, <laughs> you know, it felt good, but I don't know if I was quite spot on right. here and there. So it makes sense to have some sort of avenue to practice. But the hard part is going to be getting buy-in from from the surgeons in general because I, I, it is a busy life. <laughs> you're constantly on the run. You're trying to see as many patients, and then you're running to the operating room and you're kind of, you know, then you have to go, you know, call here and there. So it's not like you have all this free time <laughs> to get it in. It's almost <laughs> like it is going to have to be mandated at some point um, if, if we want that sort of environment to occur. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you and maybe put you on the spot just a little bit. You came from your sports background where, which is a field where uh, it's practice, 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 and then occasionally you do a game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, talking about Yasha, Yasha, Yasha Heifetz, which is how you pronounce it, Colin. Um, Thanks, Keith. Sure. Um, <laughs> that's practice, 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 and then occasionally do a concert. We are game, 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 not game, 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 but perform, 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 <laughs> and we don't have that built-in practice time. If you were given the chance, and let's say a perfect universe, you you didn't have to worry about the fact that there were 80 million people in clinic, would you choose to have practice time built into your practice? I, I would think so, As, especially at where I am in my career. I'm at the very beginning of my mm-hmm. career, and I, practice does not hurt whatsoever. Practice is what I'm seeking out. I mean, I, I, I'm, I can say I'm probably actively even seeking out practice right now because I, I'm constantly asking, um, are there any labs that the companies are putting on that are around town that I can practice doing an MIST lift or I can practice my laminectomy or practice doing going lateral position or doing corpectomy? Because that's, I, just, I all I want to do is keep practicing. So I, when I'm in the game, I'm performing it to the best of my ability. I'm not thinking about that as much. So I, I would say, yes, for, for me, I would definitely would love to have a realm to practice in, especially at this point 
um, yeah, because uh, there there isn't yet. And that's that's actually one of the things I'm thinking of right now is how how can we get that to happen? Um, and I'm not sure the, the hard part too is the mentality. For me, I think like you're saying, you're right. I came from a sports background where I practice, 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 practice. And that's how you got better. It was never the game got you better. <laughs> you know, there's things you can learn from the game, but for the most part, if you weren't prepared for it, your success, your chances of success in the game really depend on your on your preparation and practice. Whereas now I, I don't have a forum really to practice. My practice is in the game. So um, for as most people who grew up in the medical community, they never really they, they didn't quite have that same mentality going in. So I think it's going to take a, a, a mentality change in order to get that to occur. And I think a big part is going to occur in the residency portion of, of our training because getting residents to feel like, okay, you need to keep practicing even when you leave residency, when you leave fellowship that, you know, just like you have a lifelong education, you also have lifelong physical training. <laughs> you know, you have to keep, keep progressing. So I think that's, uh, the mentality we need to start moving towards and, and, and especially teaching and, and pushing on the, uh, on, on residents. Have you talked to, uh, national organizations like the Academy or things like that about setting up, uh, regular practical workshops, uh, with things like your simulator? Is that something that you would uh, be interested in working on? So it's, it's a, it's a good question. So I, I've been fortunate enough. So I, when I created these, I was just thinking, you know, we need something at UC Irvine. Um, so the fun part has been the buy-in from the orthopedic community. Um, one of uh, the great teachers in our country is Larry Marsh. He's one of the fathers of simulation in general for orthopedic care and really pushed education for residents, the importance of teaching residents across the country. So um, I've been able to the, the nice way the, the work we have done at UC Irvine has been able to gain recognition uh, from across the country. And at the same time, they were building what's called the uh, ABOS, American Board of Peak Surgery, um, year one or PGY one uh, training modules. They were just thinking, you know, they were saying we need some sort of practice with and just get a basic boot camp going for them. How do we do this? They set these modules together and trying to figure out how do we get these modules in. And it was required, but there wasn't a requirement for how many you do or what you do. So they're they're at the beginning of it. So the nice thing is my simulators have been created at the same time these have. So they've approached me um, and we was able to present to the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery what we've been doing, what, I, what I've been did as a resident and continue as a fellow and uh, how I think that, you know, some form of this hopefully will help benefit residency education and how we've been able to build a good a good data on on our simulators so far and they've bought into it so the nice thing is they're they're just trying to figure out now what what should we do how can we uh incorporate this effectively without having to make people feel like they're you know they're uh, uh they're being evaluated for passing residency we just want this to be part of the training um so They've actually we're, we're in discussion right now of how I want to proceed forward with this. So it's it's been a neat time for me to be able to to do this because as as a as a junior uh, as a, a junior member of the Rush faculty, I feel like I've I've been able to luck into being a part of something that's, that can make a, a a a difference in residency education. So one of the things that stuck out for me when I was reading your paper is you have a real focus here on basic psychomotor skills and. Today, we know there's there's so much push for technology. You've got new systems and navigation, robotics, 
And for all our listeners who aren't orthopedists, there's a lot of technology in family medicine in every practice. You, you might have EHRs. Uh, some people criticize this as putting a gap between the patient and the physician. And that could be as literal as someone turning their back to the patient because they have to type into a computer. Um, but also, relying on technology could affect your ability to develop some of these skills. Give us your thoughts on that. Is, is technology helping or hurting during the education process? And what are your thoughts for the future? Uh, I think, at least in the orthopedic world, um, I think technology is helping. Um, technology ha has allowed, from at least my standpoint, allowed uh, me to effectively be able to pull up different histories. You know, the clinical side, you know, pull different histories and pull up a wide range of data, which is always very hard to do before the, you know, the advent of EMR. They didn't have, you know, this read or that read or the okay from this person. It's easier to bring all that information together. Um, in terms of motor training, it still hasn't affected it too much. I think um, the nice thing has been is technology has at least helped build some high fidelity simulation where um, you get to practice real procedures on uh, on on these simulators. So it's it's helped out in that regard. Um, but in the operating room in orthopedics, it, it it isn't really adopted too widely yet. They have some um, in the realm of spine surgery. We have spinal navigation now which helps with, uh, with uh, like almost like a live CT while you're operating. It tells you where your, your instrumentation is. And in regards to training, it's kind of helped. If you're, if you're attending surgeon uses navigation, the, the resident of the trainee can one see exactly what they're doing internally. They can say, okay, that's where his burr is. That's where he's um, dissecting right now. I can see what he's doing or vice versa. The attending can be like, oh, can't quite see what they're doing, but at least I understand exactly where they are. I see what they're doing, um, where their instrumentation is. So it, it, it's helped somewhat actually in the in the world of spine, um, not not to the detriment at least yet. So that, for orthopedics, I, I believe it's it's still a good thing. Well, Greg, you just recently got out of fellowship and you're starting your practice. Give us an idea right now of how that's gone so far and give us an idea of how you felt prepared you felt coming into practice, maybe some things you wish you had focused on more during your education and how you're getting your name out there, how you're developing your name in the community. Uh, it's, it's been a wonderful experience so far. I mean, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to um, be hired on here at Rush University and be a part of, of the group here. Cause it is, it's been really a, a, it's a wonderful practice filled with wonderful people who really want to make change and that's what the fun part is is they're, they're they want to they're, they're constantly evaluating what they're doing does it make a difference is it doing bad good so i i really it's it's kind of infectious seeing what they're doing so it's really helped drive me early in my academic career um, <laughs> in, reg in regards to uh feeling ready i'm not it's funny because at the end of fellowship i felt i'm like i am ready to go uh, there's not a thing I couldn't do, you know, like I can do this and that. <laughs> it's not too hard. Even, you know, it's like, this can't be too bad. And then like my first, at least couple surgeries, I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? How is this going? Why is this not as easy as it looked when we, when I was doing it with my attending, you know, you're like, you just, you have this you're like, whoa, where, you know, usually you're, you're, at least when you're training, even if you're doing certain parts, you're always looking for, you know, that's right. That's not right. That's right. It's not right. Right. 
And you don't have that anymore when you're on your own. So it's, it's, it was constantly questioning myself. Am I doing the correct thing? Is this exactly where I want to be? Um, and everything moved much, you know, much, much slower than I, I had thought, even though I felt I was really well prepared. Um, getting started in my practice, it's, it's funny. I mean, even though I haven't had to reinvent the wheel, I've had people who already have their own system and I can kind of take bits and pieces from the different systems of how they run their practice, but nothing's not, there's nothing quite like real world experience uh being in it because there's so many little things that happen over the course of the day learning to uh to handle it all and maintain it all um is is been a handful but i think in the end the good news is i was trained uh very well and the bottom line is you want to take care of the patient first and do the right thing for them is it what you would want done to yourself or to your family member as long as you you, you know, you have a rationalization for what you're doing and that effect, uh, you, you can't do too much wrong. So it's, it's been a, it's been a great experience so far. Um, but definitely, definitely much more nerve wracking than I had previously thought. All right, Greg, we want to thank you again for sharing your time with us today, especially on That's your right. birthday. So happy oh, birthday. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's a, it's a good day today. <laughs> it sure is. And we're going to let you get home. Cause I know, uh, you got a little celebrating to do with your family, but Really, thank you again for joining us. Uh, Keith and I really enjoyed the discussion, and we'd love to have you back on again maybe later on once you're a little more into your practice and check in with you, see how things oh, are going. That sounds great. And thank, thank you very much for having me, and it was a pleasure to be on. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin on Pure Spectrum. Wherever, whenever you're listening to us, have a great afternoon, and we'll see you here next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.